Hi, my name is Jeff Green, and I'm joining you from the American Psychological Association Division 15 podcast. And I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Tom Farmer to the podcast. Dr. Tom Farmer is a professor in the Health and Human Development Department at the University of Pittsburgh. He is a special educator and developmental scientist who studies classroom social dynamics. His classroom teaching and research have focused on students with disabilities and students with emotional, behavioral, and social problems. He has also had a strong focus on rural education. The common theme of his work centers on ecological approaches aimed at aligning the characteristics, strengths, and needs of diverse learners with the characteristics, strengths, and resources of educational contexts. Rather than focusing on identifying interventions that work, he believes educational research should center on creating adaptive intervention frameworks that leverage knowledge of developmental processes to be responsive to the needs of diverse learners and to strengthen their long-term outcomes. Today, we'll be discussing Tom's 2019 article in the journal Educational Psychologist entitled Promoting Inclusive Communities in Diverse Classrooms, Teacher Attunement, and Social Dynamics Management, which he wrote with Jill Hamm, Molly Dawes, Catherine Barco-Oliva, and Jennifer Rydell-Cross. Um, this article was part of a special issue of Educational Psychologist on Promoting Inclusive School Climate. So, Tom, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Jeff, for having me. So uh, can you start us off with just maybe a, a brief summary of the main focus of that article? Sure. Basically, that article really grows out of, of decades of work looking at classroom social dynamics and trying to understand how to leverage natural peer group processes, particularly with regards to supporting students who are in some ways different from their classmates. That can be students with disabilities, students from racial or ethnic minorities, students who in some way may not necessarily fit in and need additional supports to to feel like they belong in the classroom. That's such an important perspective. You know, in the United States, there's all these laws and policies that ask educators to create inclusive classroom environments, and they have to be accessible and availing for, as you put it in your article, a broad and diverse range of learners. And this is challenging, but really important and necessary to do. You know, this is a real challenge for teachers. What do you think educators and teachers should be focusing upon um, to help all students be successful? What are the things that matter? That's a really good question. Back uh, 35 years ago, I was working to integrate students with disabilities into general education classrooms. And I remember a third grade teacher saying to me that, you know, I have eight students with IEPs with different needs and three academically gifted students, and then another broad range of students. And her point was, that she ends up teaching to the middle, hoping to be able to give everyone a little bit of something, but really feeling like there was so much more that could be done. And so that said, uh, what she was really asking for and the way she put it was, I'm a good teacher, but I'm losing kids because I can't meet all their diverse needs. And so I think what teachers need in many respects is supports that whether it's special education or school psychology or guidance counselors or whatever, that uh, there's a need for supports to help them see and understand the dynamics 
that go beyond them. That in the article, we talk about teachers being attuned to peer group processes, knowing which kids affiliate with whom, which kids don't have particular close friends or associates, and then also being attuned to which kids are the leaders, which, which students are following others, which students are more prone to be involved in bullying, either as a perpetrator or as a victim, or perhaps as both, but really understanding those dynamics. But we can't expect that teachers can do that all on their own. And so I think that part of what needs to be done is training and helping teachers understand these processes but also looking at our service delivery of the other supports and how can we have other professionals engaged in the process. I mean, that's such a, a great example. Uh, and, you know, this teacher who really wants to do well for all of their students, but maybe uh, is struggling to figure out a way to do that. And you said kind of teaching to the middle. That suggests to me that it's someone who's trying really hard, but maybe doesn't have the most helpful perspective upon that. And um, your article was was written so well, by the way. I just It's really a joy to read, and I encourage everyone listening to, to read it. Um, there were a lot of things I really enjoyed reading in the article, but there's this one quote that just really stood out for me um, that I thought illustrated the kind of perspective that I think you're advocating for. And, and the quote, I'm going to read it because just, I just loved it. You wrote, inclusion should not be viewed as a practice in which learners with diverse needs are brought into the general education classroom as though they are visitors, while students who do not receive special services are taught to be good hosts who tolerate and accept them. Rather, it is everyone's classroom, and everyone has different needs, regardless as to whether they are identified as general education students, students with disabilities, academically gifted students, or emergent bilingual students. It, it, that just struck me because it, it's a reframing of the classroom as inclusive of everyone and having that more kind of societal perspective, um, which it sounds like is what you're advocating. Yes, absolutely. And in our opinion, and it's difficult to do research to show this in a quantifiable way, but we can with regards to teachers understanding attunement. But in many respects, that climate really does come from the teachers, their own values, how they approach the classroom, how they engage students, and other work not our own has really shown that students pick up on how teachers feel about particular classmates. And so when the teacher is able to create a climate that makes students feel as though it's okay to be different and everyone is different in some ways, and we don't all have to be doing exactly the same things to fit in or belong, that that creates an environment that gives everyone in that environment permission to understand and not tolerate differences, but really try to engage them and value them and, and really view each other differently. That's such a great way of putting it, right? So everyone's different in one or more ways. And this kind of classroom as society perspective um, really changes the focus from this kind of host guest, you know, normative, non-normative model to a more kind of dynamic system that you talk about in the paper. And in the paper, you talk about thinking about a classroom as a society, as a dynamic system, 
and thinking about the correlated constraints of that system. And I think that's an interesting idea that people might benefit from hearing more about. Can you talk to us about the role of correlated constraints in a system view of a classroom? Sure, absolutely. Uh, I, I had the good fortune over my career to work with two people who I think were really on the very cutting edge of understanding social development and social dynamics. And uh, my primary mentor at uh, UNC was Bob Cairns. And the concept of correlated constraints was the idea that because development involves a dynamic system that multiple factors come together to support continuity in behavior. It doesn't mean that behavior is going to be something that's always going to stay the same, but rather it means that multiple factors, both within the child, such as their cognitions, their ability to regulate their behavior, their values, their beliefs, that those things are important. Oftentimes, those different factors support each other, but then you also have, in the context, you have their social roles, their peer affiliations, other peer groups that they're not a part of. Uh, you have the teacher, you have the broader community and neighborhood, and all of those factors work together in ways that are often correlated. So that, that back when I first started work on children's social development and working with students with disabilities, we were really focused on teaching social skills, and we still are. And that's very important work. I don't want to suggest that it's not necessary or that it's not effective. It's very, very important and can be very effective. But the thing that I've learned is we can't expect that to do it on its own, that rather we need to, to really understand that you do have these correlated constraints and that context and ecologies are dynamic. And so therefore, as you're trying to intervene with a child's particular skills or social beliefs, you have to understand how that, that context is contributing to it. The second person who uh, was really important in the type of thinking that goes into this paper was Yuri Broffenbrenner. That I had the good fortune later in his life, he was on the advisory board for a decade at the Center for Developmental Science, and he would come down twice a year, and uh, and I had the opportunity to, to talk with him very frequently about our work. And uh, I don't think many people know this, but that his dissertation in 1942 was on classroom social networks hmm. and that he actually had a quote coming from the dissertation that I, I can't remember it off the top of my head. But basically, it was the point that children are changing their dynamic phenomenon, but that also classrooms are as well mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. the role of the educational psychologist is to understand how that classroom and the child come together and become aligned in ways that they support and sustain each other. And then as one change changes, how does the other change in relation? And so that's really that dynamic framework of understanding all of these factors as a correlated system. Mm -hmm. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to imagine what I would do if I was in a room with Yuri Bronfenbrenner. I, I think I'd probably be pretty tongue-tied. That's an amazing set of opportunities you had. 
Actually, I, I told this story years ago at SRCD, but the concept of the teacher as an invisible hand, mm-hmm. that that was actually a term that Bob Cairns came up with, that mm-hmm. they were doing the Carolina Longitudinal Study mm-hmm. and were doing their pioneering work on classroom social networks and creating what became the social cognitive mapping procedures. And Bob was very much, if you want to understand the phenomena, you need to go out and look at it and see what it really looks like in the Mm -hmm. real world. So he went out in classrooms and as he was watching and seeing how kids interacted together, he realized that, you know, there's a lot that's going on here that adults are doing in the classroom that we don't really study in our research. And we're taking for granted that where teachers place students in the classroom, who they call on, when they call on them, how they group people together for activities, the tone of voice they use with certain students and so on, that all of these things can operate as an invisible hand to direct Mm -hmm. the social system. And so I was telling Yuri about this one time as we were driving from the airport to Chapel Hill and and Yuri just, his eyes just lit up and he actually hit the dashboard (laughs) and was like revealing the invisible hand. That should really be one of the next frontiers of of educational and ecological research. Wow. So in many respects, the work that we did was really trying to build from the vision of both Bob and Yuri. That's such a wonderful story, and it illustrates well the role that teachers play in this system. You know, so you talk about the classroom as a society, and there are these correlated constraints, and you know those correlations sometimes lead to strengths that can help students buffer against any challenges they have, and sometimes the correlations work less in their favor. Um, and this really interesting dynamic system model that you have in the paper, and I think it might lead some people to wonder about the teacher's role in that system, which you articulate quite well. Can you tell us, like, kind of what role? does the teacher play in the classroom as society system? I think one of the things that we're still trying to get our hands around and many others are as well is how much are teachers doing that's intentional and how much can teachers really do things in ways that are impacting those dynamics and impacting those correlated factors. And what we find is, first of all, there are a lot of teachers who do it naturally and they're aware of those dynamics. They can see them and they simply integrate it everywhere where they have discretion, whether it's in instructional approaches, behavior management, how they organize the classroom and so on. But uh, while there's clearly a group of teachers who do that, many teachers don't. And so they may be doing things, they may be operating as an invisible hand and not being really aware of it. Mm -hmm. So that what we need to do as educational researchers is to better understand how to help teachers do this intentionally, Mm -hmm. how to help them make decisions, oftentimes in the moment. Mm -hmm. And so I think of, you know, when we do our research and we ask teachers to name peer groups and to see how well they're attuned to their classroom, we find that teachers who are highly attuned in the first few weeks of school, that students in those classrooms tend to do better than teachers who are not attuned well in the first few weeks. 
what we find is that by the end of the school year, typically all teachers get to the same place because over time you're going to learn students and learn the dynamics. But probably, particularly in those first few weeks, first month or two, when students themselves are negotiating this novel situation and are trying to develop their identity and figure out where they fit in this system, that they need a helping hand, they need a scaffold. So that's what we need to really understand better is to help teachers make those early moments count and help students very early on develop a positive and engaged and productive self in the classroom. So that teacher role is kind of both somewhat of an authority, but also kind of a facilitator is really important. And, you know, I've, I've heard of terms like teacher withedness, but I don't think that really captures the social dynamics aspect of what you're talking about here, which is so critically important. So how do we help teachers do that? How do we help teachers better understand all the various dynamics that are happening in the classroom and kind of manage all of that? The term social attunement is actually a term my colleague, Jill Hamm, who's been uh, my collaborator for two decades now on this work, that she's the person who came up with that term. And I think it's critical in the sense that it's not just knowing information about who kids affiliate with. That's how we often measure it. But it's being attuned and then using that information so Mm -hmm. that when you're engaging and if you know that as you're doing instruction that a particular student is not engaged, but you know that they will really look up to a particular classmate or close friends, that maybe instead of trying to directly pull that student in, that you pull in their friend who can do the activity and can model it and that type of thing. So that's one example of being attuned and understanding how to use that relationship in a positive way. On the flip side of that is being attuned and being aware when students engage and support each other in non-productive behavior and pull each other off task and those sorts of things. And instead of calling them out and redirecting them in ways that, that communicate negative things about them to their classmates or that, that, you know, that we've been in classrooms where we'll see kids escalate problems with each other and laugh and make it a game and that the teacher feeds into that. So being attuned and understand, breaking up that dynamic, breaking up that social synchrony by re-engaging one or both in different activities. And then when they are engaged appropriately, give them the opportunity to do things together. So that using those natural dynamics and reinforcing ways for the productive behaviors, the productive activities that you want to see in the classroom. And oftentimes that really is an understanding of which kids fit together well or which kids actually are in some ways engaging and setting each other up in problems. And that's that social synchrony that we find that when teachers understand that and can really look and see that, okay, 
it's not just this student, but it's these various sets of interactions that we need to reframe that that, if we do it well, can lead to more productive change. It really, it strikes me. It's like uh, classroom management judo. It's like, it's like second level, very deep understanding of the systems. And that's what I think is one of the things that's so interesting about your article is that you really describe these social dynamic management processes and you've provided a model for thinking about classrooms as societies and thinking about the dynamics in the classrooms and exactly what you said, how to kind of think through multiple effects and how to shape things positively. And you called it the behavioral, academic, and social engagement model. Can you tell us a little bit about the base model and how it works? Sure. Before I became a researcher, before I learned anything about social development, I was a classroom teacher for nearly a decade, off and on in various contexts and settings with students with emotional behavioral problems. And uh, that if you want to learn how to manage behavior work in settings for youth with emotional behavioral difficulties for a little bit of time and and you'll learn a lot. In that setting, it occurred to me that as we're managing behavior, we have to look at the child as a dynamic system and that many times the best classroom management strategy is good instruction. That if you understand how to help the child be successful in their academic activities, they're going to do okay in the other domains as well. That said, that you can have a child who's very good academically, but has difficulty regulating behavior in those things. So it is an issue of understanding how you bring the academic, the behavioral, and the social together. So with the base model, that's exactly what we're doing there are three components. The first, the behavioral part is competence enhancement behavior management. And within that framework, what we try to do is help teachers think of managing classroom behavior as an opportunity to teach and an opportunity to help the students learn the behaviors that that you would like to see. So rather than view a problem behavior as something you need to stop and, and zing the student for, that you redirect it in ways that don't draw attention to the problem or to the student's problem, but that refocus the student. So that's what we try to teach teachers to do with that. Then the A is for academics, and that's the academic engagement enhancement component. And with that, we're really focusing on how do you pace instruction so that students can be successful. And what we find there is, you know, that working with with students with learning disabilities or with intellectual disabilities or other types of disabilities that in some way impact their learning in ways different from others, that it's really important for teachers to be aware ahead of time, what does this student need to be successful on this task? And then to set the activity up in a way that the student can be successful, to develop a relationship where they can trust you that you're going to help them be successful, and then pace them through it 
at a level that they can do and directing them towards developing more independent skills for their own self-direction of their, their instructional engagement. And then the third component for BASE is the social, and that is social dynamics management. It's, it's what we've been talking about. It's really about harnessing the power of the peer group to really create a positive and productive and supportive environment where everyone feels like they belong and where everyone can develop both relationships and social roles that make them feel as though this is a place I can be successful. And then the E in in base is simply engagement, that all that we're doing, working across the behavioral, the academic and the social is towards being engaged in productive ways in the classroom. So thank you. That, that was such a great explanation of the base model. And in the paper, you go into a lot of detail about the subcomponents and the thinking behind it. But I, I really like how you connect it to this particular perspective upon classrooms as societies, as inclusive, where all students should be seen as having an opportunity to succeed and that, you know, all students have some differences and, you know, everyone has ways to uh, maximize their strengths and work through any challenges that they have. And the base model really helps teachers conceptualize that in a much broader way than the often criticized kind of classic classroom management perspectives that I think really have some problems. I think my, um, you know, my question is, how do we get pre-service and in-service teachers to better understand what you're describing? What do we need to do to get these ideas into classrooms and helping students be successful? I think that goes back to my point about thinking about our service delivery models and how we are supporting teachers and how we have teachers with different skill sets working together. I think back to the third grade teacher who was teaching to the middle. She really was a very good teacher and she really was trying to do as much as she could for everyone. And in some ways, I think that with the base model and with other models like the base model, what we're doing, if we're doing it well, is helping teachers sort of conduct an orchestra type setting, if you will, and I know nothing about music, so I <laughs> could be having a poor metaphor here, but they're really trying to bring the different parts together in ways that things blend. And so that's something that for classroom teachers really requires us not expecting them to be an expert in everything, but using their expertise and then training them <laughs> in the skill sets that are necessary. This concept of being attuned to social dynamics and then managing those social dynamics, it's hard to learn at first. And it's something very much, in my opinion, like driving or a lot of other activities that after you learn how to do it, it becomes automatically ingrained in the way you approach things. So when I said that back when I was a teacher for, for many years with kids with emotional behavioral problems, that I had to be aware of those dynamics. Otherwise, kids were setting each other up and having problems and difficulties. And if I didn't know how to, to harness the power of the peer group, uh, things just got unmanageable. Mm. So I, I think that from a pre-service perspective, when I teach classroom management, 
I often tell my students, it's difficult in a typical college classroom, classroom management. It's kind of like trying to teach someone how to ride a horse without a horse. Hmm. So I, I think in many respects, we have to have good training that, you know, whether it's internships and student teaching, but that we need to provide real world training and opportunities where you're not simply learning a strategy, but you're learning how to think about the ecology and be a part of it and engage it and learn from it. And so when, you know, in this this current world of focusing on evidence-based interventions, and it's very important to have an evidence base that we can't miss the other side of that, which is the ability to go in and understand the dynamics of a particular situation and context and to make adjustments and adaptations. So I think the other side of your question is that we need to provide professional development training. Jill and I have developed a concept that we call directed consultation, where we really go in and try to understand the strengths, the resources, the needs of particular teachers, the students they're working with. We talk to lots of people, and then we try to say, how do various evidence-based practices fit with this particular context? And particularly when we worked in rural areas, that we find that uh, evidence-based strategies may not shoehorn in particularly well for a variety of reasons. And so that said, I think it gets back to that question of, of how do we provide service delivery, technical assistance and support? And I think that we probably have a system of professionals who can provide these supports and services, but it really is a question of, do we repurpose and reframe some of the things we do? So it sounds like a very uh, powerful model. And I know that in the article, you describe the wonderful results that you've had implementing this. And so I, I do think it's evidence-based. And I think what you're talking about is that it needs to be nuanced to the context. And um, I know that your work in rural settings, as you said, has provided a real opportunity to see that uh, nuancing happen and figure out ways to make that happen. So I think that's that's really important. And your article goes into a lot of detail about you know kind of the scouting report and other ways in which you leverage uh, multiple people within the school system um, to adopt this perspective and how to help people be successful. Goodness knows that I would need a lot of support before I could automatize all of this. So I, I appreciate the the broadband way in which you're approaching it. Can you say a little bit about what you're working on now? Like, what are you what are you doing now that's really exciting uh, that you're um, enjoying that has uh, you know kind of got you energized? The other side of this, and as we're working with the base model, is how do we really support students with disabilities or students who have really significant needs that are different from others. And over the past decade, two decades, there's been a strong focus on tiered systems of support, multi-tiered systems of support, response to intervention, uh, PBIS, those sorts of things. And those are very important frameworks. The idea of a tiered system makes a lot of sense. And the base model is really designed to fit within a tiered framework. What we're trying to do that's a little bit different, and we think 
that in many ways, while it, it seems just nuanced because we're still talking about three tiers, that we feel like it's important to flip from a response to intervention where we're trying to focus on, here's the evidence-based intervention. We use it with particular children to see, okay, does it work? And if it doesn't, let's move to the next tier of more intensive intervention. And in some ways that makes sense, but I think we can flip it and say, how do we intervene in ways to be responsive to the developmental needs and the developmental context that the students are experiencing? And so from that framework, we talk about a tiered system of adaptive supports where we're really focusing on how do you, through data-driven strategies, take practice elements of evidence-based practices and then make data-driven decisions about adapting those strategies to the particular needs, the particular context, and so on. And so that puts us in a position where with any particular tier, you can make adaptations. One of the things that when we go out to schools that, that teachers will say, here are our universal strategies and we do this and it just doesn't work for, for this student. And rather than thinking that, okay, we need to figure out a more intensive strategy, that universal framework that typically when we talk about it in a tiered system approach, we're using that word universal in a way that's saying that this is a strategy that works for everyone. But in the disability literature, there's a focus on what's called universal design for learning. And I think another article that Shelley Hemel and colleagues, uh, I think it was actually in uh, the special issue where they were providing commentary that they talk about universal design for learning approaches as being important in inclusion. And we very, very strongly agree that we see that tier one, that universal as not being that every kid gets exactly the same way, but that universal means what are those functional supports that these particular subtypes of students need to be successful in this setting and so on. And so that gets back to the base model and figuring out how do we adapt those strategies and pace the student or redirect the behavior in ways that's adaptive for this student rather than expecting the student to respond to exactly the same thing that I'm doing with 25 other students in the classroom. And that makes a lot of sense and it aligns so well with that ecological perspective on the classroom. And, you know, students are responsive and teachers and educators and other people are responsive too. And there's a, a responsibility to be responsive for every person in that particular system. So that, that makes a lot of sense to me. So, Tom, thank you so much for talking with me today. I really encourage our listeners to check out your 2019 article on Educational Psychologist entitled Promoting Inclusive Communities in Diverse Classrooms, Teacher Attunement, and Social Dynamics Management, which you wrote with Jill Hamm, Molly Dawes, Catherine Barco-Oliva, and Jennifer Rydell-Cross. So, Tom, thanks again so much. Thank you, Jeff. 